Welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast, helping you propel your writing business to a whole new level. And now, here's your host, Ed Gandia. Hey there, welcome to the High Income Business Writing Podcast. I am your host, Ed Gandia, and this is the podcast for business writers and copywriters who want to earn more and less time doing work they love for better clients. You can find detailed show notes for this episode at b2blauncher.com forward slash episode 140. And those notes include a summary of our discussion as well as links to resources mentioned during the show. We really do live in interesting times. You know, as freelancers, we get to work on a wide variety of interesting projects. We often work with clients we've never physically met. In fact, our clients might be in, in a different country altogether, thousands of miles away. We get to dictate our own schedule. We get to work from the comfort of a home office, make our own business decisions, and set our own fees. Now, of course, that's the ideal we strive for, right? Not every day is going to be perfect. Sometimes we're trying to get to that level and the pain of getting there doesn't make things feel that great. But I would say that for many of us, it would be hard to give it all up for traditional employment, even though not every day is great and sometimes it's a struggle and sometimes we ask ourselves, what are we doing? At the end of the day, it would be very difficult for us to go back to cubicle hell. I know that when I went solo in 2006, it was freeing. It was freeing to finally just make my own decisions, do my own thing. But I also remember the reaction of many of my friends and relatives. They had no clue what freelancing was or that anyone could actually earn a living doing work from home on their computer, that anybody would get paid to write for businesses. They didn't even know that was a thing. But over the past 10, 11 years or so, there has definitely been a shift in in that mindset. There has been a ton of information published about the freelance economy. Freelancing and consulting no longer mean that I'm between jobs, right? And experts and economists are finally recognizing that we're a real and growing segment of the labor force, not a temporary fluke. I think if I were to quit my day job today, uh, I wouldn't get as many confused stares as I did uh, back in 2006. Now, the real question, going back to this uh, this idea of all these studies and all these statistics that have come out, is how many people are really freelancing out there? You know, and are the big numbers that we're reading in hearing about an accurate representation of the freelance workforce, because some of these numbers are staggering. I mean, 30, 40, 50% of the workforce, you hear that, but then you look around and you don't know anyone else who's freelancing, right? So what gives? What do these numbers and projections mean for us who are already out there freelancing? Well, that's the topic of this week's episode. And my guest, Robert McGuire, is going to pull apart these numbers and predictions and give us his take on what's really happening in the gig economy. Robert has spent a lot of time just pouring through all of the studies and reports over the past few years that that talk about the gig economy and who's in it, how many people are in it, what are they doing, what are they earning, who's doing well, who's not doing well. And he's consolidated all of this into some very meaningful information. So I hope you enjoyed this discussion and I hope it sheds some light on what's really going on out there and where the gig economy or the freelance economy is heading. Hey, Robert, welcome to the show. It's great to have you back. 
Thanks for, very much for having me back. It's been a pleasure. You know, it's been, yeah, I guess it's been about a year since uh, you and I have connected, and I'm going to definitely link to our first interview here in the show notes. But, um, you know, I always like to start by, with a quick intro. So why don't you give us uh, some information on what you do? I know there's a couple of things that you're involved with, but give us a basic overview of what kind of work you do, what types of clients you work with, and then a little bit about um, this passion project of yours that we're going to be discussing today. Oh, sure. Thanks. Um, yeah, if folks have a chance to listen to that previous episode, uh, you know, they'll learn the long sordid story of how I grew from a, a baby newspaper reporter into a freelance writer and then started uh, what is now really my uh, content marketing consulting business. Um, we I provide kind of the overall project management for content heavy projects and act as like the, the managing editor for those projects for my clients. And then I put together a t- curated team of freelancers to execute on those contracts. And my uh, specialization, my niche is education technology startups, online learning, and higher ed. So uh, I provide tons and tons of blogs and white papers and ebooks for my clients in those areas. Uh, and I, like I say, I'm managing kind of a team of freelance writers who I subcontract to for most of that and editors and designers and so on. Um, and along the way, you know, what we were talking about last time was uh, how I kind of got into that by accident through this demonstration project. And uh, when I was uh, started just out of personal interest, a site on online learning Um and in the meantime, I started just out of personal interest and passion, a site on the business side of running and uh, as, as working as business side of working as an independent contractor. And it's called Nation 1099 at nation1099.com. And the 1099 obviously is a reference to the tax form that most of us in the U.S. are very familiar with once we become independent contractors. Very familiar with that, unfortunately, sometimes. Uh, <laughs> not, the, not the kind I want to get. Um, I, I want to get the money. I just don't want to get the tax form saying how much money I made. Uh, so l- let's talk about this uh, this project that you embarked on recently because uh, I have compiled data. I have done some pretty extensive surveys on just kind of the, the state of the freelance nation, if you will. Uh, but it's been based on survey responses mainly from my audience and then some outside research as well, but nothing really comprehensive. And you took a, kind of a different approach to this. Why don't you tell us a little bit about what, you, uh, what you've done? Oh, yeah. And if you've done surveys of your audience, please forward them along and I'll include them in the ne- next update. Um, you know, like uh, probably you, you and all of your listeners, I've, I see these headlines, you know, one third of us are freelancers or half of us will be freelancers by a certain date and time. And, uh, you know, I just got curious about that because um, I'm curious. And also we needed to really get a handle on that because that's the, you know, the audience for Nation 1099 is independent contractors, consultants, freelancers, people in the gig economy. And I just felt like we needed a clear idea of who the audience was. So I decided to dig into all these surveys and synthesize them. So it's sort of like a literature review or a meta-analysis of all the existing surveys out there um, that you might have seen the headlines for. You know, Upwork and Freelancers Union does one every year that's really terrific. MBO Partners does one every year that's really terrific um and but the headlines um they uh, they they have really eye-popping numbers and i you know i've i sometimes wonder about them so we decided to look into them more closely 
Well, you know, it's interesting because considering the size of this audience, the size of the freelance marketplace, you think that this would be um, something you'd, you'd kind of run into all the time. So even though there's some great information these days out there, there's not a ton of it, which which I find a little surprising. Yeah, well, you know, one of the things that we found, I, I got to tell you, when I was thinking about writing um, – when I was thinking about starting the site, Nation 1099, Nation 1099, a year and a half, two two years ago, I was, you know, doing tons of reading about how to build my own business as an independent contractor, and I came across the, a book that some of your readers might be familiar with called Free Agent Nation, and it was published in 2001. It's by Daniel Pink. Daniel Pink has since become better known as the author of Drive, which has been very influential in the startup world, uh, and I think that book, Free Agent Nation, might have gotten buried a little bit because it came out around the time of um, the 9-11 attacks, and you know, all of our minds were on other things. Um, but I was reading that book 15 years later, and he talks about these trends, like how we're becoming a free agent nation. More and more people are kind of working as free agents, but it's really kind of this journalistic approach with lots of anecdotes. And he pauses for a chapter and says, okay, let's actually look at the numbers. And he has this long discussion about how you can't find any numbers because nobody's really counting them. And I'm, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, you know, 15 years later, the same is still true, um, starting with how – um, the U.S. government kind of tallies up employees and not and you know, different types of employment. Um, so we're still kind of in the same situation that there isn't a lot of really good counting going on. Uh, there are four or five really good studies, um, um, but you know, compared to you know work, you know, the kind of work fa- workforce and economic trends uh, that we usually study, that's a pretty small number. Well, and I'm I'm curious. It, why don't and I agree with you, right? It, you start digging into the numbers from the government, and you know they want to lump us all into kind of one big generic category, and which I, I guess will make great headlines. But when you dig into it, it's not very accurate or very helpful. So why don't most governments track yeah. us very well? You know, what's your best assessment as to to what what really the percentage of, of freelancers like us is in the US yeah. economy? Yeah. Well the the answer to your the in there is after we sorted and sliced and diced and read deeply into the studies um, uh, the, the analysis that we came up with is that if you're talking about people who uh, are independent contractors full-time in lieu of traditional employment, then we're talking about approximately 11% of the U.S. workforce, and it's probably a similar number in the EU. Um, that's that's a very different number from you know some of the headlines. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but still, really, it's, a, it's still a huge number, and, it, and it's doubled in the last 15 years. So it, and, the, and the growth rate projections are something like 3.5 percent a year um that the, the t- that that the pool will grow by 3.5 percent a year so that's how we get to something like 20 percent over the in a few years from now um but it, yeah it's a lot less than saying a third of us or a half of us the the those larger numbers are really referring to um a big bucket that includes um people who work for temp agencies people who are um landscapers under the table um, getting paid under the table, people who might have turned on Uber as a driver once in the last year and are not really working in the gig gig economy in- includes all kinds of gig work, whether it's kind of the professional, uh, highly skilled freelance work that you and your listeners are doing or um, more direct service based like house cleaning 
on a, on an app like TaskRabbit. So the, the, those numbers that you see in the headlines, they're really good studies. And, and when you read into the studies, you get really good information. But the, the top headline is counting everybody in one big pot. Well, let's let's dive into some of your findings because you uncovered some very fascinating uh, information and in, in insight. So why don't you walk us through maybe some of the more surprising uh, data and insights that you uncovered? Yeah, well, I mean, it might be surprising to people who aren't in this field. Your listeners are probably not surprised at all, or many of them anyway, because um, it probably reflects their own experience. And I have to give full credit. I mean, we didn't do an original study. So this stuff, you, you can find – all our sources in this article on our website on Nation to 99, um, but it really comes from MBO partners and the Upwork and Freelance Union and Study Every Year and Field Nation, oh, and McKinsey Global. Uh, McKinsey has a terrific study they did last last fall, uh, looking worldwide. So I'm really stealing from them or synthesizing them. And some of the things they found, um, well, one is the enormous the the growth in the total pool. Um, how many of us are freelancer by choice? You know, there's a a perception out there that. Um, freelancers are kind of pushed out of the workforce between jobs that they're kind of desperate to get back into the workforce. Um, and that is true of a decreasing shares to the point that, for example, something like uh, more than 80% of total uh, pro professional freelancers, by which I mean freelancers are doing highly skilled creative or professional services, freelance writers like us, um, the more than 80% of them say this is their most preferred way of working. 50% say you they would not go back to work in a traditional role at any price. Um, and MBO found this one interesting thing. They kind of looked at the trends uh, from the recession to current. They said, okay, yeah, after 2008, the Great Recession, a, a lot of people were pushed unwillingly out of the workforce. But as the labor market has tightened, they're not going back into the workforce. They, they maybe came out into freelancing unwillingly and now prefer it. Um, and the meanwhile, a, a much larger number of people exit the workforce very willingly because they're so frustrated with um, traditional employment roles. Interesting. Yeah. I, you know, I, I remember seven, eight years ago uh, when we were writing The Wealthy Freelancer, this was still a misconception just kind of out there uh, in terms of, well, if you're freelancing, that means you're really between jobs or, you know, you're unemployed. And um, I'm not seeing that as much anymore. Yeah. You know, like I, I look around in my neighborhood and like when I walk my dog uh, around lunchtime, how many people in just this neighborhood yeah. <laughs> work from home, uh, either because they're traditionally employed and work from home, or in many cases, they're just self-employed in some capacity. Right, right. And that's, it's a similar experience for me, probably with a lot of your listeners. Um, you know, I happen to live in the kind of community where there are a lot of creative people who are working as independent contractors in a variety of domains. And I should mention uh, Nation 1099 is sort of domain agnostic. So it's not about freelance writers. It's uh, So if you're a writer, you um, might be reading on our site about software engineers or you know, we have a list of over 150 different roles that are now being done a professional skilled roles that are now being done on a contract basis um but you know if you walk around our neighborhood it's sort of the same thing and you know when i go to coffee shops and to the bars and to the farmer's market i'm running into friends and we're talking about business like you know 
you know, what are you doing to find customer or clients? And, and, you know, can you recommend an accountant to me? Or, you know, I just heard from one of my, one of my clients, I got to get this legal paperwork done. How did you handle that? And it finally dawned on me, we're all like struggling to get these answers. And there's no source of information for answers on this stuff, especially for independent contractors. There really isn't. You're right. No. <laughs> L- let's kind of take a step back and, and talk a little bit about some of these definitions because, I mean, I think you can kind of go crazy here with semantics, but uh, I, there there has been an argument about the whole freelancer or I'm a consultant or I'm an independent contractor. Yeah. You know, w- what did you come across when you looked at all these definitions and, and people's preferences? Yeah, well, there was no, there was no uh, consistency whatsoever between one study and another. Um, so I, you know, I have my own sense of how to define each of these terms and when you know all of let's take the term gig economy for example um i you know i would think i'm working in the gig economy you're working in the gig economy my my work is gig based all of my subcontractors their work is gig based in the sense that it's project based and short term and everything but when you open the newspaper and you read about the gig economy you're probably not recognizing yourself there uh most of the action most of the energy in the news is about um direct personal services like driving and house cleaning and pet sitting and things like that. Um, But that's really a fraction of the total of independent contractors. So I tend to think of all all of these things are growing. The gig economy is growing. But if you can think of it as like a vertical where, say, traditionally it's been like in the world of publishing, freelancing is – very familiar, right? This is not new. there's nothing new happening here in the world of publishing because they've always used freelance writers and designers and illustrators and photographers. Um, so you think of those kinds of creative services as the most traditional core of the gig economy and musicians, of course, where the term gigging comes from. But it's kind of expanding vertically, both downward and upward. It's expanding downward into those personal services where apps like Uber and Lyft and TaskRabbit and so on allow people to disaggregate um, personal direct services out of a an employer employment role into this kind of gig role and it's expanding vertically up into more management and strategy type of roles uh, and of course there have always been consultants who done who've done that but it's really the you know the advising and strategy roles are now starting to include really management roles and a lot of that is being done on a contract basis now yeah, I'm seeing so much of that at those higher levels. Uh, it used to be years, ten years ago. You know, if you were uh, were a uh, let's say a CFO for hire, uh, that was pretty rare, and usually your business came you know, through word of mouth, that kind of thing. And now, sure, that still comes through word of mouth, but they have websites, they're marketing themselves. Uh, it, it's crazy. It, it's yeah. I'm, I'm seeing so much of that even at those yeah. higher levels. Yeah, we um we, uh, you know, most of your uh, listeners who are uh, who are writers are probably very familiar with um, marketplace websites like Upwork and so on. Uh, what they might not be aware of is there are the now are these sites, especially for those kind of high level. A CFO type, consulting type, st- strategy and management type roles, and we have a list of those consulting websites on Nation 1099 too. And all of this is what kind of what inspired me was this article. Um, in the Harvard Business Review from 2012, and I was as I was ramping up my own consulting business, 
you know, I'm trying to understand better what is exactly it is I'm doing. And there was this article called The Rise of the Super Temp. And Super Temp, in this case, the authors of this article, what they were referring to is like you meant, like you said, those CFO for hire. In my case, more of like a, you know, I went from being kind of a writer um, to a more of a marketing director for hire. And I think that that, not that it never existed before, but the growth of it has been astounding in the last 10 years. It really has. Talk to us about your findings in terms of vulnerability. You know, the, when you kind of look at the different categories of freelancers, um, who is, I'll give you an example, right? Uber drivers, there's this concern that they're mm-hmm. being, it's a race to the bottom. You know, they're yep. making less and less every day. There's a right. lot of those categories. You know, are we all in danger of, of that kind of pricing pressure? Yeah. Um, well, the short answer is yes. We're all always in danger of uh, downward price pressures. Um, the uh, I'm very enthusiastic about the possibilities of the gig economy, and so I always need to kind of pause and say all this comes with a caveat that I recognize that it's not all perfect. It's not suited for everyone. There are downsides, and in general. And I shouldn't say this is a finding. This is more of a hunch that's unconfirmed from the findings. The the date the salary data or the earnings data about professional freelancers. The best source is the MBO Partners Survey, and they find you know like really great things going on for people who are very highly skilled. More than twenty percent of us make more than a hundred thousand dollars a year. The average freelancer um, who provides a professional skilled service uh, makes more than the median house, household income. So it's something like $65,000 the average income for that kind of worker and the median household income in the U.S. is something like $56,000. So we're beating, beating that, um, that threshold. But my hunch is that um, what is going on is probably parallels what's going on in the economy generally, which is you know things are terrible – and really dangerous and vulnerable for people who are low skilled and in uh, low and service positions, um, and that's true whether you are an hourly employee uh, in a traditional role or whether you're doing on a, on a, on a gig based app. So all these folks who are concerned about um, vulnerability of uh, gig economy workers on the apps, I mean that's all true. They should be concerned about that, but it's not like the Traditional employment roles are that much more secure for them right now. Um, and what's going on with very highly skilled people providing strategy and management and consulting um, and planning services is they can kind of write their own ticket and they can be very high earners as independent contractors, which is also – and they can also obviously be very high earners in traditional employment. But the gig economy is now allowing them a lot more flexibility about how they organize their lives. And what I think is really interesting is kind of that messy middle of – Directly providing a creative service like writing or photography or graphic design. I my, this isn't confirmed by the data, but it's my hunch, and I think most of your listeners have had this experience that it's a dangerous middle ground to be resting on. That there is downward price pressure. If um, I mean, we've seen it with freelance writing, right? Prices have fallen. The floor has fallen out for a lot of folks. So you've really worked to help people sort of survive and then thrive in that environment like if if the price if the floor is falling out from underneath you then you need to sort of find another ladder to to climb on if you're going to uh, survive in this situation so i think that the data is kind of 
hinting at that, that you you can't just kind of rest on the skills you have and on the market you have. You have to figure out a way to position yourself in the market differently. You really do. I think it really stresses that in a big way. And uh, I, I feel like that's accelerating. You know, it used to be you could kind of uh, skate by for a while, but now it's kind of catching up to a lot of people. And this is why I always say, guys, uh, you know, two things. You have to specialize and target uh, because that's where the real value is. And an even higher level of value is solving problems and not being yeah. an undertaker, right? Because that's a lot yeah. of people. Tell me what you need written. I'll write it. And, right. And that is you can you can be at the higher levels, uh, the higher brackets there if you yeah. specialize and target very well. Yeah, and that last point of yours is really a strategic point. It's like understanding uh, what your value proposition is within the market. Um, and that kind of strategic thinking as it relates to being an independent contractor is the part that I felt like was missing the most. So on our site, like I, I think of it as like two major categories. Like we've got all this operational stuff, like how to find, how to manage your books, how to do a bu- find a budget, how to get insurance, all that stuff. Um, and then the other part that we have less of yet, but I'm most interested in, you know, so please help me out <laughs> is uh, that strategy part, like how to figure out where I'm going to position myself in the market to know how I'm going to differentiate myself to make clear my value proposition. And there is a huge library of that kind of strategic thinking as it relates to small businesses, medium businesses, and Fortune 500 companies. And there is not a word of it on how to do it as an independent contractor. And as I say, we are 11% of the workforce. So we really need this advice. <laughs> oh, absolutely. And, you know, so here's my. My observation has been that as an as a nation, as a workforce, we have very quickly been taken from uh, an economy where we're, our attitude is, tell me what you need done and I'll do it, mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Boss and Mrs. Mm-hmm. Boss, to one of, um, I need if I want to eat, I need to hunt. Yep. And yep. all these skills that we weren't trained on, we suddenly have to acquire them and get really, really good at them. Right. Um, so it's not just the hunting, but also the, you know, like you said, how to position yourself and all the, and, and there really isn't a school for that. Our traditional educational system is not set up for that. It's set up for traditional employment. So I, w- when you think about all these years of this in, kind of indoctrination, it's very, very difficult to think differently. Yeah. And so, if, but if you, and if you are thinking differently, like if you have kind of an entrepreneurial impulse or creative and not just creative about, the work itself, like I'm, I'm creative in the marketing content I write, or I'm creative in my photography or my graphic design. But if you're creative and about how are we going to um, run this business, and you're a traditional employee, I think that you're decreasingly finding yourself engaged. Um, and the, the the studies definitely show that that the employee engagement is headed the wrong direction. Uh, you know, every employer talks about the importance of employee engagement, but the statistics show they're making no headway on this whatsoever. Um, that employee employee engagement is way down, and the same is true of work life balance. Every employer, you know, reads you know their HR magazines and HR newsletters every month with a million articles about the importance of work life balance, and again, that's another one where the metrics are all going the wrong direction. People are feeling like their lives are really out of whack. And that's what's driving a lot of this. People want to feel a passion for their work. 
and they're not feeling it oftentimes in in, in a traditional employee relationship. So they go out solo and they're finding like some of the surveys said, you know, not only is this my strongly preferred way of working, like I feel like I'm providing more value now because I'm bringing more passion. And your your listeners might have had this experience. I know I have where I'm one of a of a team, one member on a team, like a hybrid team with some internal employees and me and other consultants and uh, customers. So all these stakeholders are coming around a short-term project. And oftentimes the consultants are much more passionate about the work than the, than the, than the full-time employees are. Yeah. <laughs> it's really crazy. And uh, here, Well, here's the other thing I've found too, people who go in this direction. And so they have to acquire a different set of skills and they have to get good at those. And for some reason, a few years later, decide to go back into the workforce. Uh, I, I, find that they're way better prepared to, to, to yeah. do that, right? They're yeah. much more entrepreneurial. They're uh, just their attitude is different. Uh, their engagement levels are very different. Uh, so I, you know, I think my point there is that I think it is a good thing. I know that a lot of people on the fence say, I don't know. I don't know if I want to go in that direction. I think nothing, very little uh, negative can come out of moving in this direction because what you'll walk away with, nobody can take away from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It feels super risky. Um, it is risky. I mean, you you you'll have a period of 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 less income until you get established, and you know some folks don't get established, so it doesn't pay off. Um, but f- it pays off for more than you would guess. Um, and one of the other findings in one of these studies that we cite is that um, at least in this professional creative class, right? You know, again leaving aside kind of that personal services category where it's really a vulnerable position that um, a lot of folks are saying they experience more income security, not necessarily more income though. There's that too, but more income security as a freelancer, because we all know that the set, you know, the salaries have stagnated for a generation um, that the, the actual income for the population as a whole has been stagnant for a generation. So if you, want to take command of your own fate oftentimes going out solo is the only way to do that and of course you know if if your income is dependent on one source your employer um that traditionally has meant a very something very secure but people are starting to experience that as insecure and and diversifying your income across multiple employers as an independent contractor might be the better way to go absolutely uh I, I find that so in the survey that I did, and I'll send you a copy. And this is gosh, it's been five years now. Um, I was surprised that the number one reason people went solo and they stayed solo was not income yep. or income security; it was flexibility. Right, right. They start for the lifestyle and they stay for the money. Yeah, um. <laughs> exactly. And, 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 and let's face it, right? Uh, there, there's a there's another dark side to all this. Um, you know, people complain about work-life balance when they're traditionally employed, but this can very easily go down the wrong path when you go solo and you start getting very busy. I mean, you you can create a really, really bad job for yourself. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And I've had phases like that myself personally where, you know, for three or four months, um, I'm killing myself. But, um, you know, it's easier to move in and out of that uh, than it is to move in and out of a tough job. It really is. Uh, I want to get into the your findings on uh, who's actually doing well versus who's doing okay versus who's scraping by. You touched on this a little bit earlier with the MBO Partners study. What what 
what factors do you think are contributing to to these categories? I mean, other than what we've just talked about, and and what do you what are the trends that you see here? Do you see things improving? Uh, mm. Do you do you see people kind of recognizing that they need to shift to a higher levels? Well, I guess what are your 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 biggest insights there? Yeah, I. Uh, again, this is a guess or a kind of a hunch based on me reading a bunch of this. I was corresponding with an economist a couple weeks ago, and he said kind of succinctly what has been brewing on my mind that when it in terms of income, um, it hardly matters whether you're um, a full time employee or freelance. Um, that the the variation the the difference uh, in income is not terrific. Uh, in, in those two positions, so to speak. So all the the benefits or the dangers are really in other areas like work life balance or how much sec- job security you have. Um, so in a sense, I think that the trends income wise and the explanations of what are happening income wise are roughly parallel between in, being an independent contractor and the economy as a whole. So what explains why why some of us are doing much better than the others is. The explanation is probably the same with why we'd be doing better in traditional roles. It's having very high skills that are marketable, that are in high demand, that haven't really been disrupted yet by some tremendous uh, technological change. I mean, I don't think copywriters in a salary role are making a lot of money uh, necessarily any more than freelancers who freelance copywriters are. Um, I think that freelance um, Software engineers are making a lot of money the same way that salaried software engin- engineers are making a lot of money. Um, so I think that the explanation is really, really comes down to skills and wh- how those skills are valued in the marketplace. So one of the things you and I corresponded about was the the fact that companies are very unprepared for this trend. I, I'm curious uh, if we can maybe expand on that a little bit because uh, I, I kind of get mixed mixed readings on 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 that statement uh mixed readings for me or when no mixed readings when i when i read that i it seems like some companies really are clueless and some others <laughs> are t- totally get it uh yeah. but um but are struggling with a cultural impact of having a completely virtual workforce it's just there temporarily yeah, well, so there are a few things happening. That that one, uh, work in general is becoming more project based versus role based. Um, work is starting to happen happen more on a kind of team or high a team team basis, and the teams are often hybrid or blended in, with folks both internal and external. Um, and in the meantime, like like if if eleven percent of your your potential talent pool is freelance and has no interest in an employee role, if you've got a talent shortage or if you're in a talent war, if your company is trying to find software engineers and 11% of the total pool is just basically remove themselves from consideration, um, that's something you've got to account for. Your biggest competitor is not the tech company next door. Your biggest competitor is self-employment. If, if all of us were added up together, all of us who counted ourselves as independent contractors categorized as self-employed, if all of us were uh, under one employment umbrella, we would be the biggest em- employer in the wor- in the company in the country. We'd be bigger than the federal government, bigger than the standing U.S. military, uh, bigger than Walmart, bigger than the state university system in your state. Eleven um, percent is the biggest group of employees or wor- of talent of workers um, in the country. Um, and but all- everything in our economy is organized around 
role-based employment. Our healthcare is organized that way. Our taxes are empl- organized that way. The job classification issues, um, the way that software sold is based on seat licenses and s- assuming um, um, full-time employees. So um, one way that employers are un- unprepared, and I think I have this experience all the time, probably your listeners do, is how lousy they are at engaging with us and em- onboarding us. So when a client hires one of us, it's like, They've never dealt with. They don't have no idea what to do with this. They don't know where to forward the contracts. They don't know who needs to sign them. So that whole onboarding process that they have down like Pat with traditional employees, for eleven percent of their talent, they really have no process existing whatsoever. You know, it's interesting you say that because my perception is that it really depends on the type of talent we're talking about. For creative services, for some reason, in most organizations, it's very disjointed. It's very yep. haphazard. Like you said, there's no real process. You're kind of leading the client through this. And, mm-hmm. um, and and it's okay, but you have to be prepared to lead the client. I'm not seeing that as much with software development, for instance, where you yeah. have companies with, with just teams of of uh, freelance developers, and they have someone, in fact, in charge of – they have a full system uh, in, a, in a very specific onboarding process and, and so forth. But yeah. um, I guess it depends on on the category. My hope is that this will uh, this will seep uh, into from from the development side to the creative side and some of the others because I agree with you. It's um, it's it's kind of it's kind of a mess. Yeah, and they often. Um, I think a lot of us have the experience of sort of being treated almost like this necessary evil and really holding us at arm's length in ways that are un- uh, counterproductive. Um, like I. Like I can do my job better if I get a peek at the existing work product, if I'm introduced to other team members, if I um, really understand the vision of the organization and the strategy. You know, if, if they hired me as an employee, you know, they sit me down, they say, this is our vision, these are our values, this is the goals, this is our business model, this is the value proposition we have for customers. But as a independent contractor, it's almost like they deliberately keep it secret. Like if I know that, I'm somehow going to make them vulnerable um and that is a totally counterproductive way to work with your independent contractors because i can provide a lot more value if uh they clue me into that stuff well and and that actually leads me to my next question my which is about culture Uh, it seems like a lot of organizations are worried about well if we go in that direction you know what about our culture or about our team environment if you know let's say a third or half of a workforce is here for on a project basis only you know, are you seeing much of that concern? I know that used to be a big concern out there for a while, but I'm wondering if companies have been able to figure out how to uh, circumvent that. Well, I haven't looked into it much. My my advice would, is to think of it as a um, opportunity rather than a threat. Right? To if you say, if you think, okay, well, you know, 11 percent of our prospective talent is out there re- eager to work for us on this consultant uh, contractor basis. Um, and if our if our internal employees are you know becoming more project based versus role based anyway, I mean that's another trend. Is in a sense, even in the salaried or hourly wage roles, the work is starting to look. The people are starting to behave more like freelancers, even in the workplace. Um, I mean, you can make this a good thing. You can you can say, okay, it's it's exciting and 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 
provides a lot of value and provides a lot of energy to an organization if we put together these fast-moving hybrid teams. And if we really let people in and make them part of the culture, they're going to add to our culture and they're going to stick around and we can use these contractors again on other projects. So I think that the companies that will win in the future are the ones who are going to think this through. That's not the only way to do it. I mean, you should be cautious. you got to be uh, aware of some of the risks of having strangers walking around your building, right, which is kind of what's happening. But, you know, if you just kind of react against that rather than having a really deliberate talent management strategy that accounts for the, 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 tr- the way this trend is going, um, you're going to be much better off. No doubt. This idea of staff on demand. I mean, everything that I'm reading, uh, especially out of Silicon Valley, saying this is the only way uh, to to really scale and to do some of the big things that uh, innovative companies are trying to do. Um, right. Not the only way to work, but meaning that's the only way they can actually accomplish what they need to accomplish. So here to stay. And uh, this has been a very interesting discussion, uh, Robert. See, thank you so much. I Before we take off, uh, where can we learn more about Nation 10 and, uh, 1099, of course, and where can we find the metadata that you kind of consolidated uh, regarding all these studies? Okay, yeah, great. We have uh, if you go to the site nation1099.com, the site in general is business advice for independent contractors. Uh d- like I say domain agnostic, so not just writers. Uh so writers you can kind of learn you can hear what people in other domains do in their lines of work and learn from that. In the upper right, there's a resources section, and that's where this um, uh, literature review is with all this study. Uh, It's called the Ultimate Guide to Gig Economy Data. We also have some great lists of freelance websites and so on there. We're on all the uh, social networks, so I hope you'll join us at Nation1099 on Facebook and places like that. Robert, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks very much. Thanks for your, for what you're doing with your clients, Ed. The High Income Business Writing Podcast is a production of B2B Business Launcher. Learn more at b2blauncher.com.